Well, we'll switch gears a little bit now. And um, as we've all heard ad nauseum (laughs) over the course of the last week and a half, the polls were wrong about the recent presidential election. They were really wrong. And that doesn't happen very often. And so the fact that the polls were so very wrong, I think, was a, a contributor to the shock in what is being and has been called an historic political upset. Now, I am no pollster or statistical analyst. Neither do I play one on TV. But it seems to me that this surprising situation with the polling reveals a disconnect between what people said they were going to do and what people actually did when they got into the voting booth. And so we think about why might that disconnect be? It could simply be the impulse that a lot of us have to tell other people what we believe they want to hear. It could be the impulse that we all have to avoid being labeled by a culture that has, if you haven't noticed, become one that is quick to call names and quick to accuse and quick to shame people into agreeing or accepting what they say must be. So you and I say, well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we know that's not true. Words are powerful, and words can hurt us deeply. So to avoid being hurt or labeled or name-called, we just go along with the crowd. It's easier to do it that way. But when you can express your opinion in safety, in secrecy, with no fear of labeling or ridicule or reprimand, as in a voting booth, you might answer quite differently. And maybe that's why the polls were so wrong, because they didn't factor in this disconnect. And if that disconnect can happen in the political realm, surely it could happen in the spiritual realm as well. And so we need to be on guard and looking for this disconnect that exists between our private spirituality and our public spirituality. You know, we go along with the crowd in public. And we say spiritual things. And we do spiritual acts and we're we're part of the crowd. But then there's that private time, that voting booth time when we are in a secret place. And often in those places our words are not the same. And our thoughts are not the same. And our secret acts are not the same. The passage before us this morning does not make provision for this sort of disconnect, for public spirituality and for a private one that's quite different. It does not allow us to hide in the crowd. It reminds us that God does not play this game with us. We understand along with David who wrote in Psalm 51, Behold, you, God, desire truth in the innermost being. You, God, desire truth in the innermost being. And so God's will for our lives then is that there is a perfect match between what we profess to believe and what we truly believe. Just like a trace, tracing paper drawing when it's laid back atop the original. There should be a perfect 
matching of all the lines. And so that's the challenge before us this morning. And you can imagine maybe what it's like to, to stand here and, and, and talk about a truth like this. Let me just say all of us are in this together. Because all of us here must seek to have truth in our innermost being. That's our goal for this morning, and it's in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If you'll just take that, and when you've found Deuteronomy, chapter 29, I'm going to ask you to stand. We love to stand here and honor the word of the Lord as we hear it read together week by week. Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we are thankful for your word. We proclaim it and acknowledge it to be truth. And we call on you as always, Spirit of God, to teach your truth and only your truth to us this morning through your word. Because we know that when your spirit joins your truth, change takes place. And that's what we need this morning in our lives, change and transformation. So that we become more and more formed in the image of Christ. We ask you to do that among us now as we come together around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. May be seated. Well, verse 19 in this passage sets up a conflict, a conflict that has to be resolved in every one of our lives. All of our lives here, we've got to resolve this conflict that verse 19 sets up for us. And as I've already mentioned, this conflict is between a public spirituality and a private spirituality that is its exact opposite. So look in verse 19. It says, When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself. So let's get the context here. The oath referred to in this verse is what we've considered earlier in chapter 29. You know this is our fifth Sunday in chapter 29. But it's the oath to which these people have to agree in order to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And so this verse tells us that the man described here hears the words of the oath. And according to the Hebrew, that means that he he has perceived. He's understood everything that was said. In other words, this is not a man who forgot to take his ritalin before he left his tent that morning. And could therefore say, well, I heard the words, but I just really couldn't focus on them, and I couldn't, I couldn't pay attention to them. That's not this man. This man understood the oath he was taking, the promises he was making. But even while he was taking them, he had no intention of living by them because this man saw in some place else 
either in another culture around him, in another world view, or in another belief system, this man had seen something that was more attractive to him. And whatever he saw, to his mind, held out more promise to him of real hope and real help than what God could give him. And so that's what he believes in his heart. But nevertheless, thinking that and believing that, he stands along with all the rest of the covenant community. And he takes the oath with them. Listen to his words in verse 19. I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. I'll go along with the crowd. I won't be labeled that way. I won't be ridiculed. I won't be shamed. No one will ever know that in secret, I do my own thing. I have my own idols, things that I really prefer, things that I really love, things that I really trust in. And so that seems like a really good plan to this man. He can be in the community. He can receive all the blessings of this community, should any come their way. And yet secretly, he can pursue whatever it is that he wants. And they say that the word of God is not relevant. What could be more relevant to every one of us here in this place than not being this man? Is it not the challenge of our lives every day? To live out what we believe consistently in every area of our lives? Is it not a challenge for us every day to fulfill the promises that we have made to Christ when we say, I love you, I'll follow you? Isn't it a great challenge to remain in Christ, to stay in Him in the midst of a culture that offers so much that's so appealing to us? We like it. And it seems to come to us at much less sacrifice and and much less commitment. These are difficult challenges every day of our lives. Because they're so difficult, many refuse to take up these challenges. And so to accommodate these people, to allow this kind of person to move freely among us, we've come up with a category for them. This category allows people to have this disconnect in their lives. And we call this category nominal Christian. I'll be a Christian in name only. So people who call themselves Christians, but they don't really follow Christ. And we accept that as a possibility. But the terms are are incompatible. They're mutually exclusive and should be unacceptable to us. We can understand the ridiculousness and the unacceptability of that concept if we join a different noun to the word nominal. Picture this. Happy couple standing right here. All the tears have been shed as the beautiful bride processed down the aisle on the arm of her strikingly handsome, youthful-looking father. (laughs) What's funny about that? They get here, and the, the father gives the bride to the groom. They join hands and face each other, and the groom begins to take his vows. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving 
and faithful, nominal husband. (laughs) Who would accept that? The bride would probably beat him with the bouquet, and the rest of the congregation would boo him. It's not acceptable to us to hear that. I'll call myself your husband, but I have no intention of ever being your husband because, well, honey, in reality, there's another girl that I love better than you. No, unacceptable. Neither is it acceptable with God. Look in verse 19. God says that this kind of disconnect will bring disaster because God desires truth in the inmost being. Who we say we are, we must be, and this is for our good. This is the way to peace and blessing in our lives. Did you ever see the movie Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams? You know the plot, in order to get access to his children after his divorce, Robin Williams has to dress up like uh, an old lady uh, nanny housekeeper. And the climax of the movie comes when he is required to be both nanny and daddy in the same place at the same time. And so he begins as, as the nanny, and then he has to run to the bathroom and put on daddy clothes and go to the table where he has to be daddy. And then he's got to get up and go back to the bathroom and put on the clothes where he has to be nanny and go back to that table. And it's exhausting to hear it, and it's exhausting to watch it. And finally, Robin Williams, he can't keep up with all the, uh, the switches. And so he shows up at a table a little bit nanny and a little bit daddy, right? And he's exposed. And everything falls apart after that. Well, that's a picture, right, of lives lived in spiritual schizophrenia. You know, who are you? Who are you? A believer or not? God requires truth in the inmost places. We can fool others, but we can't fool God. And so remember that that what Moses is describing here in verse 19, this person is not real yet. It's just a potentiality because God knows the human heart. And so we hear these words as words of grace. It's God saying, look, I see you gathered here on the plains of Moab. And just let me tell you, I know that what's in your heart. And there are people standing here on the plains of Moab right now who may become this person. And so very quickly, the potentiality becomes a reality. Because these people strike camp and they, they leave the plains of Moab and they cross the Jordan River and they enter into the promised land and their first stop is the famed city of Jericho. And you know that story, right? Josh fit the bad love Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. Hey, great success story, right? Powerful defeat. Second stop, AI. More success, right? Wrong. When God's army came against AI, they were routed and they were chased from the city gate. Well, what happened? A man named Achan happened. He becomes the man mentioned here in verse 19. Achan worshipped an idol, not God. And his idol was wealth and possessions. That's where Achan put his trust and his hope and his security. And so in order to worship that idol, that God replacement, Achan had to break covenant with God. So just hear this if you don't hear anything else. If you and I are going to have idols in our lives, God replacements, things that we trust more than God, things that we love more than God, in order to have those idols, we have to break covenant with God. It's the only way it'll work. And so that's what Achan did. 
This is how he did it. Jericho was defeated. There was plunder everywhere around. Can you imagine the confusion after a battle? And Achan saw a beautiful robe from Babylon. And he saw 200 silver coins. And he saw a bar of gold that weighed more than a pound. Well, he wanted these things. Though he knew he was not to take them, he took them and he hid them in the ground under his tent. Who would know, right? Who was in the voting booth with Achan when he cast his vote to sin? Hey, there are millions of people in Israel. And in the confusion and the aftermath of the battle, who's ever going to even pay attention to these things, much less know that I'm the one who stole them? Achan could pretend. He could go ahead and worship with the rest of the community of Israel. He could praise the Lord and worship with them, but all the while the worship was going on, where was Achan's mind while they're praising the Lord? Oh man, 200 pieces of silver, a pound of gold, that beautiful robe. That's where his heart went because those are the things that he treasured. Who would know? So when Joshua asks God, why was the army defeated? Here's God's answer. Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They've stolen things that I commanded must be set apart for me. They have not only stolen them, but they have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. That's why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. And then God says this to Joshua. Command the people to purify themselves tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. In the morning, you must present yourselves by tribes, and the Lord will point out the tribe to which the guilty man belongs. And that tribe must come forward with its clans, and the Lord will point out the guilty clan. The clan will come forward, and the Lord will point out the guilty family. Finally, each member of the guilty family must come forward one by one, the one who has stolen what was set apart for destruction, the one who has stolen what was set apart for destruction will himself be burned with fire, along with everything he has, for he has broken the covenant of the Lord and done a horrible thing in Israel. Now when Achan hears those words, he might ask himself, could this really happen? Could God really know about this secret thing? How could God know? Well, he found out soon enough. Because the next day they did exactly what God had commanded. And Joshua brought all Israel before the Lord. And, and they brought the tribe of Achan before the Lord. Well, then maybe Achan's palms began to sweat just a little bit. Because after all, he is of the tribe of Judah. And, and that's the one brought forward. And then all the clans of Judah came forward, and the clan of Zerah was singled out. Now Achan's getting really nervous because, hey, that's his clan. And then among all those clans, the family of Zimri was singled out, and now Achan is sweating bullets because that is his family. And then every member of that family is brought forward, person by person, and Achan was singled out. Yes, God knows what's happening in the secret place, in the voting booth. And so Achan and his family were destroyed because of Achan's sin. And people say to me, "Ah, another one of those harsh stories in the Bible about a vindictive God. Actually, the story is the exact opposite of that. 
Of course, our culture would interpret it that way. Look at the last weeks. I've got to stop getting political, but i just got to say, all the rioting and stuff, doesn't that strike you as a bit petulant? We didn't get our way, and so we're going to change the law of 200 years in order to have our way. No, the law is in place. We live by the law, and so it is with God. This is a story of a gracious God who loves his people and wants them to live in such a way as to receive the blessings that come along with being his children. Achan is among the people standing on the plains of Moab, hearing verse 19. And so he knows that God knows. God sees the potential of his human heart. Achan takes the the oath. Achan enters the covenant with full knowledge that what he does will lead to disaster. And yet Achan breaks the covenant and worships the secret idol anyway. And so the fact that God actually does what he says he will do does not make him cruel or vindictive. It makes him trustworthy and faithful, right? Not weak, not indulgent. Either his words mean something or his words mean nothing at all. But more than that, when God says, I know your heart, he means I know your heart. And when God says you cannot hide, God means you cannot hide. And so he strips away our ability, even here this morning in this place, to de- from deceiving ourselves into believing that he's not really all-knowing, that he's not really all-powerful, that he's not really everywhere present as he claims to be. Yes, he is. And so what a blessing and an act of grace for God to point out these truths For everyone to see, to bring them out in the open at the very beginning of Israel's history. Praise God for for His grace that He shows Himself to be who He claims to be. There's a parallel in the New Testament. And this happens in the very beginning of the life of the church. The church is brand new and there's a man and wife and they're named Ananias and Sapphira. And outwardly they said, we will go along with the crowd. You know what? We are going to embrace these radical ideas of of these radical revolutionary Christians. They're all selling everything they have and they're bringing it to the church. And they're saying, here, give this to the poor. Give this to people in need. Well, we'll do the same thing. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell land they have. And they said, here, we're giving everything to the Lord. Only they weren't giving everything to the Lord. They kept part of what they had back for themselves saying, who would know? It's ours in the first place. We know the rest of that story. God knows. They thought they were alone in the voting booth when they were casting their vote for sin. But God knew and he would not allow the pretense. He would not allow them to worship Jesus outwardly but secretly have this idol of greed. And so both husband and wife lied and both died the moment they had finished telling their lie. Achan, Ananias, Sapphira... They are not normal. It's not normative for what happens to God's people. If God killed everyone who lied, this room would be empty. I mean, that's not funny. It's just true, isn't it? There'd be no one here. So it isn't normative. But the stories and the the events are certainly enough to teach truth to God's people and to make us responsible for our hypocrisy and our worship of our secret idols. They're acts of grace these events, to let us know for certain that God sees and God knows. And there's stories and truth enough to let us know that it's pointless.
for us to hold out any hope that we can be nominal in our faith. That we can claim to love Jesus and then say along with the man in verse 19, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. No, you won't. God desires truth in the inmost parts of who we are. God is looking for that match between the secrecy of the voting booth and the lives we live in front of others. Who are you? Who am I? In the voting booth, that secret place when no one's looking. When you're free to think about whatever it is you want to think about. What are your thoughts? When you're free to say anything you want to say and no one will know, no repercussions, what, what do you say? When you're free to do whatever it is you want to do because, hey, no one will ever see, no one will ever know, what do you do? How gracious of God from the beginning of Israel's history and the beginning of the history of the church to let us know clearly you cannot hide in the crowd. And how gracious of him to take away from us any hope that there can actually be something called a nominal Christian. God requires our commitment to the covenant. God requires we live by faith. He requires that we trust him and rest in him alone as our only hope. He requires that we set aside all other idols as what will bring us real help and real hope. And so this entire process at which we've been looking in the book of Deuteronomy, particularly this chapter, entering into the covenant, God's repetition of the same truths over and over, it's God's ancient form of informed consent. Before we do this procedure, let's understand what is required. And God doesn't try to soft sell it. So that everyone will come along. No, it requires nothing less than everyone there love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. No soft sell there. And that love is demonstrated by obedience to the Lord. In exchange, God says, I, 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 I I will be your God and you will be my people more tenderly expressed over and over in Deuteronomy. You will be my treasured possession. And so there's no nominal here. You can't find it anywhere in Scripture. We are called to radical faith. Can I give two more examples? Please say yes. John 6. Sorry, you, you, you who said no got outvoted. <laughs> you know what? Y'all just told me what I wanted to hear, right? People pleasers. John 6, famous story. At the beginning of John 6, Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people. You know the story with five loaves and two small fish. It's a mind-boggling miracle. Such a great miracle that the people decide, hey, we're going to make Jesus king. Even if he doesn't want to be king, we're going to make him king by force. All well and good. Nominally, hey, this man is for us. Look what he gives to us. The next day, as Jesus always does, he takes the miracle that was physical and he points to something spiritual. And on that next day, Jesus said to these same people, I am the bread of life. 
Not the bread you ate yesterday. I'm the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Here is informed consent, right? On Jesus' part. The Jesus who fed you, loaves, now requires something of you. Commitment. And the people's response at the end of the chapter was this. Oh, oi, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What a drastic change that happened between at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. Second story, John chapter 8, is similar. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus appeared at the temple and it says there that all the people had gathered to hear him teach. And while Jesus said in, in, in chapter 6, I am the bread of life, in, verse, in chapter 8, he famously says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, informed consent on the part of Jesus. No nominalism here. You must follow me. Again, what is the reaction of the people? When commitment is called for, the very last verse of this chapter reads, At this they picked up stones to stone him. (laughs) They didn't like the commitment part. Nominal part, yeah. Commitment part, no. Let's kill him. Radical commitment to Jesus who acted so radically on our behalf. That's what's called for. Radicalism, not nominalism. Jesus, what a radical. Left heaven. You know what heaven is like? You don't, neither do I. What a place of wealth and glory. He left it to come to earth for us. And he chose to live here. He he gave up the wealth of all that to live among us. And not only that, to die for us. So guess what? Someone who does that gets to require truth in our innermost being. A radical person like that gets to require that we surrender all that we have and all that we are to him. A radical person like that gets to require you may not have any other idols. No person or no thing that you love better or that you trust more than you trust me. And he gets to require that what we do in the voting booth... In the secret place when no one is watching is the very same thing that we do in public. Because in both places, private and public, we seek to honor Christ with all of our lives. My guess is, if you are anything like me, we have some work to do in this area. You have work to do? You don't have to answer. I do. And I pray that we will do that work. And not just for our own sakes. And not just to avoid disaster in our own lives. And not only just for the Lord. But I hope we'll do it for one another. See all the people here? We call a family of God. Because verse 19 says this. Not the easiest to translate. But the gist is this. That the one who is not true... In the inmost being, the one who secretly worships idols affects the entire community. And so verse 19 says, disaster falls on the watered land as well as the dry. Everyone is impacted by your secret idol worship. Just as Achan's sin brought destruction on his family and defeat for the entire nation of Israel. We are all in this together.
Can you say that with me? We are all in this together. You've got to take care of yourself for the sake of others. So let's think about it positively. And then I'm done. Like one more minute. When Moses had been in the presence of the Lord, Scripture says that his face glowed. It radiated with the glory of the Lord. So much so that Moses had to put a veil over his face so that the people would not see as the glory of the Lord was fading away. That's what we look like when we are secretly in the presence of the Lord. We radiate His glory. When we are in the secret place, worshiping our idols, when they dominate our lives, when they consume our lives, what radiates from us? When we leave that secret place, not the glow of the glory of the Lord, but the ugly reflection of those idols, whatever they are, greed, ugly, lust, ugly, pride, ugly, arrogance, ugly. And when we worship those things, those are the things we radiate. But when we are in the presence with the Lord in our secret place, When no one is watching, when we're free to do what we want to do, then we glow with the glory of the Lord. And that will radiate throughout this entire community. So your obedience in this, and my obedience in this, blesses all of us. So let's love the Lord enough. Let's love each other enough to have truth in our inmost being. To surrender to Christ, not only in name, not only in public, but always. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these gracious words. You do not leave us to guess about who you are or what you require. You state it so clearly, Lord. And we thank you that you follow through with what you say. It makes you a God of truth. It's because you are gracious that you tell us these things and how it is that we should live our lives. So I pray, Lord, for each one of us, for myself and everyone here, that we would truly seek to have a beautiful connect in our lives. That when the tracing paper is laid over the original, they look the same, public and private. Because in both places, Lord, we seek your glory. Not just in public, Lord, where we receive the glory for what we do, but in private as well. Lord, we ask you to bring this match, this consistency into our lives. Father, I pray that you would really help us love one another and see that this goes way beyond ourselves. That the choices that we make impact others. And I pray, Lord, that we would love each other in this body so much that we would take care of ourselves spiritually for the good and for the growth of this body and for your glory. May it be true that we are not nominal, but in all things, Lord, we surrender all, all to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.